Good evening. This is Cinema 60. What's that with your mum? Well, ten or nights of verse. Bit funny. Does she like me? Not very much. <laughs> Thinks he did. Where's your dad then? He's in prison. What do you do? Armed robbery. Hard nut, eh? No, it's all right. Get on better with him than what I can with mum. I would have done. What? Got on with him. Could have done a few jobs together, couldn't we? Wouldn't do that, would you? Yes. A few extra bob more, innit? It's a guest episode, and we've got uh, our special guest here. Hello. Gabrielle Karate of 77. It's a, uh, a film distribution company, and that's your baby. It's my baby. Do you want to tell us a little bit about 77? Yeah. So for many years, I worked in the New York film scene, I guess you could say, for various exhibitors like Film Forum, Film Society of Lincoln Center, BAM. And I always wanted to... I worked in distribution many years ago for, at the time, they were called Kino International. Now they're Kino Lorber. And I worked at some other distribution companies, Palm Pictures, but I wanted to try my hand in starting my own thing. And I started the company a few years back in 2019 to release this film called Babylon, which is this British film from 1980 around, I guess, the reggae scene in London. Jenna saw you introduce that film at BAM, I love right? that movie. That movie was amazing. Thank yeah, you for bringing that back. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's um, it was a film that I, I programmed at BAM 10 years ago. And then I, I when I saw it, it was, it was so powerful that I thought, like, why does no one know this film? And then cut to, uh, I started looking into the rights after I left BAM. And, and then I found out that Kino Lorber was doing the same thing. So we decided to team up to do it. That was now three years ago. After that, I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm into youth culture movies, but like, I love this film Bronco Bullfrog. And I was talking to the BFI about what they had in their library that they were looking to sell the rights to when this came up. And so here we are. And that's the movie we're talking about tonight. Bronco Bullfrog premiering March 25th at the Film Forum. First time in 50 years it's it's showing in North American theaters. Yes. So this is the restaurant. I'm not actually sure. It must have shown in some capacity over, over the years. But this is, I think, the first time this restorations will have shown in, in the U.S. So it's a film that I was supposed to release in 2020 for the 50th anniversary of the film. It premiered at the Edinburgh Film Festival in 1970 but then it actually came out in the u.s in 1972 so i guess it's 50 years since the u.s theatrical run so and of course we're talking about this film on cinema 60 uh, because the film was shot in 1969 at one point in the film you see that they're going to they're trying to see the movie oliver which came out in 68 and probably they're going to see the re-release in theaters in 69 so this is it's called Cinema 60, but 60s is kind of just a convenience, a way to sort of narrow down the period of time that we're discussing. But we're willing to you know, talk about things made in 59 that were released in 60 and things that were made in 69 and released in 70. So 
So this is fair game. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's been this and Zabriskie Point. Yeah. <laughs> the title card at the very end of the film says shot in East London in 1969, for what it's worth. Works on a technicality. It's very 60s. It is very 60s. There's nothing about this movie that's not 60s. It's, it's 60s youth culture all the way. It's about suede heads, which was a term I was only familiar with because of the uh, Morrissey song, Suede Head. I never really right. knew what it represented. But now, I've, I've, after seeing this film, I have a sense of what the suede head haircut looks like. It's sort of a skinhead haircut that's grown out a bit. Exactly. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the movement that these youths uh, are experiencing in this film? Yeah, well, it's actually... The term suede head was, I think, I'm not sure if they called themselves that, but it was kind of an extension. There were the mods, right, in the 60s that were more, I guess they're more dandyish. And this was more of a working class utilitarian look, the skinhead look. And the suede, suede head is simply because their hair grew out and was like, I guess they, it was less skin and more suede, like slightly longer hair. But they also, the look was around what they're called, they're called braces, but suspenders in the U.S. and Doc Martin boots. That's kind of the look that then later on in the 70s returned around the like two-tone ska revival era, but then was later on adopted by like, I think, racist skinheads. But this was before that and and the skinhead the original skinheads were linked to the original like ska and rocksteady and reggae scene they listened to a lot of that music a friend saw the film and when i explained to him what the film was and the suede had seen and he was familiar with it when he watched it he was disappointed that the kids weren't into like reggae and like that whole scene like reggae music and like northern soul and the music itself is this band audience, which is they're kind of a band that's interestingly like the suede head scene is like a transitional scene. And so is the the band's music is kind of it's a post psych rock like it's not prog. It's not psych. It's one of these. It's not really art rock. And I don't really know what it is. Mm hmm. It kind of fits perfectly with the movie, although this person that saw it was disappointed that there wasn't any of this like skinhead esque ska reggae that he like associated with the suede head culture. Anyway. Well, it's funny because this reggae scene is sort of what connects Babylon with this movie. And we've known each other for a long time and yeah. uh, we went to college together. And honestly, I'm not sure we ever had a conversation about movies when we were in college. We were radio station chums, and I knew you as the guy who played funk and reggae and, uh, and all sorts of odd 70s stuff yeah. on the radio. And uh, we sort of reconnected later in life as... Around uh, cinema. Yeah, as, as movie obsessives. But you, yeah. you've still got this, uh, this sort of reggae thing running through the... <laughs> films that you and your company are releasing yeah i guess i mean there's no reggae the movie has nothing to do with reggae music it's just like there is something there is the scene that they're part of uh, i guess an extension of the scene like the wider scene was associated with this music when i saw the film i mean i actually i knew about the film for many years and i'd never seen it before and i saw it only when 
BFI restored it. It just is, to me, it's is a very special film and very unique. Can you set up for us where this movie is coming from? What kind of traditions? I mean, I know it's it's often referred to as part of the British New Wave kitchen sink tradition, but it, it definitely feels like something else to me. It feels more connected to what Mike Lee and Alan Clark were doing in the, right. in the 70s and, you know, Ken Loach at, at the end yeah. of the 60s. Yeah, to me, it, it isn't really an angry young man film also because... I consider those films much more like professional, like slick movies, you know, they're not that slick, but they are on some level, you know, this is much more, it's, it's really, I guess it's a little, it's part of like, there's the free, the British like documentary free cinema movement Mm -hmm. in the fifties. And I guess, I don't know when that ended, but the contemporary reviews of the film compared it to this documentary, we are the Lambeth boys mm-hmm. and it's about working class youths, South London. That movie's about South London. This uh, Bronco bullfrog is East Londoners, but it's different because that whole scene was much, it was in the late fifties or more like, I don't know exactly. And I'm sure there's like mod purists. I don't know if they're mods or rockers or what, mm-hmm. but they're much more slickly dressed than the, than the kids 10 years later in, in Bronco bullfrog. I also think, I don't think Mike Lee, early Mike Lee is particularly slick either, but it's more out of the theater tradition, which this actually is too. I mean, the theater director, Joan Littlewood, had the Theater Royal in Stratford, London, and and that's how the director discovered these kids. And they came from, they were just kids hanging around her theater. And then she started using non-professional actors, these kids, in these pieces and Barney Platts Mills met them, made a documentary with them, and then they made the film together, I think a year, a couple years later. Yeah, there's definitely an improvisational feel to this film, but it yeah. doesn't feel connected to the stage at all to me, the way Not that at really all. Mike Lee does. I mean, there's nothing yeah. stagey about this film. So much of it is just dialogue free. It's just a, I mean, I guess Mike Lee's first film, Bleak Moments is very much about the inability of people to communicate, which is a big part of this movie, but it's done in a much more theatrical way than this film is. It feels very realistic. Like to me, it it kind of felt like if you took an angry young man or a kitchen sink film, like uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning and removed the like studio slickness, like took away the articulateness of this working class character who is somehow much smarter than everybody else that he knows if you you know took that away and just tried to record a more realistic version of a movie like that that's what bronco bullfrog feels like to me yeah i mean i think the main thing for me that why i love it it's kind of it's a humanist film i guess you could say i mean you could tell that the people that made the film love the scene they love the kids they're just trying to represent their world as best they can you know and there's a respect for these kids and it feels extremely authentic to me, you know, and it also is very universal. Yeah. I, I love this film. I'd never seen it until uh, I knew I was going to talk to you about it. Jenna hadn't either. What, what did you think of uh, Bronco Bullfrog? This, you know, it's, it's funny you guys were saying about the, the dialogue I thought was also the, the best part, you know, it's, it's just, everything feels stronger in this movie. I think when you're going to cast a bunch of real kids and you're going to use improvisation with non-actors or people that are not trained in improvisation, 
the less said, the better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in in that way, it's funny because it it never feels corny. There's never any forced dialogue. There's nothing that you know when, when they don't know what to say, they just say nothing. And while that yeah. also makes you very aware of the fact that they're saying nothing, in a way, it's also very realistic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the scene in the cafe where they meet the two girls, the Irene and Tina, you know, the two. Right. The, so there's the the kid, Chris, and oh, it's it's Tina, my cousin, you know, and they come in and they literally sit down and say nothing to each other. And then Tina says, better be going. High school flashbacks. Well, we're deep into the movie now. Maybe we should give a little uh, summary of what this movie is about. So the movie's about, uh, it, it's around this boy, uh, as welder's apprentice named Dell. And Dell has a crew of teen friends that he just hangs out with and does nothing with and breaks into shops. And all of a sudden he meets this girl, Irene, and he falls for her immediately. And at the same time, there's this other kid who goes by Bronco Bullfrog that's out of, he gets out of Borstal, which is, you know, I guess a juvenile prison in England. And he has a, a job that he wants Dell to be part of. And they're breaking into these train cars and, you know, essentially taking a whole bunch of illicit, you know. Stealing electric blankets. Appliances. Yeah, electric blankets, various appliances, you know, blenders and things like that, it seems. But the film is essentially Dell and Irene wanting to spend time together and their parents not letting them and then the two of them wanting to run away. And that's kind of the gist of it. Not much happens in the film, but I think a, a lot and, and nothing happens at the same time. It's a document of that era and those kids in that time and East London. I somewhat know London, but I mean, in this case, it's just a completely different London to the scene where they there's a scene where they go to the West End to try to get into Oliver and they can't afford it. So they end up essentially at a, a hamburger joint. And so it's worlds away from that scene from the West End. It's definitely one of these like end of the decade, dead end existence movies that we see quite a few of, except that, you know, there's something that it it was kind of nice to see the end, like, you know, 1969 on the streets is about as boring and dreary as our lives. Are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, it's not, there's no swinging London here really. Exactly, it's like, no. it's just this it's just poverty real... or jail if you step out of line. Yeah. You know? And there's actually, when I was rereading some of the reviews and some of the stuff for the film before talking to you guys, and there's a line, the one line that I keep that jumped out at me from a review, it's this, the film critic Margaret Hinksman from the Sunday Telegraph is from 1970. Her line says, it's not about the confident rebels who reject their role, but about the sad youngsters who have accepted it. And right. that's kind of, that's the whole thing about the movie. They're accepting their lives and what, and the fact that there's kind of no way out, but they somehow, they're not rebelling at all on some level. They just want to hang out and have fun and 
be in love. That's all it is. They're not fighting against, quote unquote, the man or anything, you know? Right. That's what I loved about it. I mean, like this idea that they can't, they, they can't see a future past the right now. You know, when, it, when everyone asks each other what they want to be doing right now, oh, I just want to be with my girlfriend, you know? But when they're together, they, they have nothing to say to each other. Right. <laughs> or, you know, even the, the whole uh, Bronco Bullfrog stealing. It's like he is stealing for kicks and, and for these items and he doesn't seem to do anything with them either. They're kind yeah. of kicking around his house, you know, and he just mo- keeps his moving. His house and- is just full of appliances and pots and pans. And right. Stuff. Um, the other, the thing that, I mean, I love Bart, you know, that I love Billy Liar, but, and part of the reason I love it also so much is, I mean, I, I hate to give away endings of the film, but the fact that like, he can't really get out of his like Yorkshire town, you know, he just, he wants to get out, but he just can't. And that's what I love about it. And I also, I relate to it. You know, I relate to the characters in this movie. Well, that's really the what's behind most of the Angry Young Man yeah. movies is they yearn for something more than what they can experience in there. I mean, I guess it's mostly northern towns and not uh, you right. know, London at all. But it's, uh, you know, they want something better for themselves, but realize that, no, I, a common laborer's life is all there is for me and then that's what I'm going to be. And, and it's sort of an acceptance of that by the end or, you know, some, some acknowledgement that, you know, I, I know I'm better than this, but this is the best I can do. So I'm going to accept it. Yeah. Yeah. What's most interesting about this movie to me is that it really is at the core, a romance and you don't, you know, you're watching, you know, three quarters of the way through this movie and you still don't realize that that's, what this movie is because the young couple who you know really like each other and really just want to spend time with each other they don't have much to say to each other but they know they like each other and uh they're they're supposed to be what 15 and 17 years old and it really like it it sort of gets across this thing that i haven't seen in in many movies like it reminded me of gregory's girl in a way and that it's just this this inarticulateness of young people in love and how they just don't know what to do. And that's part of why Dell and uh, Irene are trapped in this world is that they just realize that all they want is to be with each other and they don't know how to make that happen. You know? Yeah. Yeah. In, in spite, you know, there are all sorts of, you know, environmental pressures that are keeping them from each other, but it's also them just being too young to know what two people in love are supposed to do. Well, they also have no role models. I mean, like you think that maybe their romance is kind of bland and then you look around and you realize, no, they actually have something a lot more pure than I think anyone else in the film does. The dad and his like new wife or her mom. And I guess her father's Italian, supposedly. Right. And he's in he's in jail. But yeah, you don't you there's really no no one to look towards. Right. And I I think their chemistry that, you know, Dell and Anne Gooding is the. The, the young woman that plays Irene, um, it, they just have great chemistry. It, it, you, I, to me, it's totally believable. Maybe I've just seen it too many times and I'm, you know, I am releasing the film. So um, I'm drinking my own Kool-Aid, so to speak. But um, to me, I just, I really feel like they're, they're very compelling. I thought she was particularly compelling. The just the the bad posture and the long bangs I thought was right. like like it. But <laughs> that's all I needed. Yeah. Yeah. And supposedly so she was she worked at like a newspaper stand kiosk that Barney Platts Mills would would go to 
would get his paper and that's how we he just asked her if he, she wanted to be in a movie she's the only person that's not from east london i can't remember what uh, what neighborhood she's from but would someone who knows accents better than we do realize that she's not from stratford i'm not sure actually i mean i don't the accents are very they're dense they're thick you know and especially joe or bronco bullfrog he's difficult to understand yeah I didn't catch every word just because their accents were so thick, but it also is sort of just like a bunch of kids talking about nothing, really. Like, right. there are some plot points that are easy to pick up on if you don't catch what they're talking about in the dialogue. But so you said you're you're releasing this film in both subtitled and a not subtitled version. Yeah. So the film was was actually released in the U.S. in 1972 through New Yorker Films and Dan Talbot, who who started New Yorker Films and it showed at the New Yorker Theater with subtitles. And I'm doing the same thing. I'm, I'm essentially most screenings will have subtitles. And then if it's, it's essentially up to the exhibitor, if they want to show some un, unsubtitled screenings, I really feel like it just needs it to get people to understand what's going on, you know? And then I found out that I guess in New York, I think cinemas will have to have, open captions in some screenings every day for the hard of hearing. So um, that's what I, w- I was told by film forum. So they said, it's good that it'll have subtitles. I mean, it doesn't, not every line is subtitled. It's, it's partial subtitles and it's kind of character by character really. And scenes where like Dell, when he's with his mates is much harder to understand than when he's with his family, you know? But yeah, that's a good point. Well, I can say to anybody listening who's deciding whether they should go see the subtitled version or not, I didn't have any trouble enjoying this film without the subtitles. I didn't catch every single word everybody was saying, but you know, you sort of get used to the lilt of the dialogue and you and you get, you know, you get what they're saying even if you don't catch all of the yeah. slang and uh some of the words run together a bit, but yeah, I don't think it affected my viewing not not having uh subtitles and missing you know a, a word here or there some of the slang is great like um they refer to girls as salts which i love mm. i love that for i don't understand what that comes from but <laughs> yeah to, birds it, to them they're salts yeah i was waiting for birds and, and it took yeah. me a, a little bit to realize they're talking about girls when they were talking yeah. about salts and <laughs> yeah there's also definitely a sense of, you know, these are working class kids, but they do have the the sense of style. I mean, it's no accident that Dell's last name is Quant. I mean, I don't know how common a, a British surname that is, but uh, yeah. for most people, especially, you know, in, in 2022, hearing that name, they think of Mary Quant, you know, the inventor of the, the miniskirt and uh, think of right. swinging London. And so it's a very intentional irony, I would think, that Barney chose that last name for Dell to sort of contrast the the lives of these youths in East London with the the swinging London scene that was going on in uh, Carnaby Street. Carnaby Street, for sure. And uh, show that, you know, their lives are not exciting in any way, but they still have this sense of style. And, you know, a little bit of slang that I liked in the movie was when uh, one of them, Chris or Roy, says... uh, well, let's go dandy ourselves up. And so there yeah. is this this sort of idea that, yeah, we've got a they're you know, they're all wearing button down shirts. 
you know, yeah. Bronco Bullfrog, was, you know, at, at one point is wearing this like extremely colorful shirt and tie, like very dandied out. Paisley, right. Yeah, Paisley, yeah, for sure. And, and the tie, <laughs> the tie and the shirt are the same Paisley. Yeah. It's like the same material. Good old days. It's incredible. It's a whole suit, you know. Me and he's surrounded by uh, electric blankets and appliances <laughs> in that scene. Most of the kids don't go uh, that far to make them, so, you know, to dandy themselves up, but they are, they all wear button down shirts and are trying to, you know, have sort of a working class version of formal wear on it at all times. And yeah, and it's, it's clearly a, a style choice. And yeah. that's, that's really fun to see. As you're mentioning this, like the film is most known in like mod fashion circles, right? And I think crowds that fetishize, I guess, the mod scene or the skinhead scene or that whole era, they know and love the film. It's more famous, I guess, for that. To me, it's that is less interesting than just the film itself and the quality of the film. But it's mostly known in those circles. Yeah, I don't know if it was in your press material, but uh, said something about Paul Weller being a big fan of this. Yeah, film, exactly. And that makes, Paul, makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, Paul Weller, supposedly it's his favorite film. So, <laughs> I mean, because I'm not a huge fashion, uh, I'm not obsessed with style. I, I don't feel it to me. It's that is not as interesting, but I can see why people obsess over that aspect of it. Well, you know who is a little bit obsessed with mid-century style? Me? <laughs> well, you know, I was going to say, there, there's, I mean, anytime you just get like a bunch of kids hanging around just casually talking, you know, that's that's going to automatically be cool. <laughs> right, no. And anything they're wearing now becomes cool as long as you see yourself in them. Yeah. I was curious if, if you could speak a bit to Barney Platt's Mills. I didn't know much about him. I was I was looking him up after watching this movie because I thought he was interesting. And it kind of sounded to me like he had a bit of a Cassavetes thing going on with just this idea of like having like real people, real dialogue, but also being a very egalitarian in his filmmaking and, and bringing, uh, you know, film to the people kind of, you know, communistic ideals. Yeah, I mean, so he came from more of an, upper middle class upbringing he didn't finish school and his father got him a job as an apprentice editor and he worked he worked on spartacus supposedly as an apprentice and a few other films in the early 60s and he later essentially he started this little company maya films with andrew st john who's the uh, who produced this film and then adam barker mill who is the cinematographer and they made documentaries and they made this film and they also made his follow-up private road. But after that, he just, he wasn't interested in making films for the sake of making films. He moved to Morocco and started a film school in Morocco. He started the Portobello film festival in London. And I guess every screening was free and a lot of them outdoors, I believe. I guess He's definitely no tour, but he didn't. He only made maybe four features, like two more after Private Road. And Private Road is a very different movie than Bronco Bullfrog. It actually has actors in it, and it's about a completely different scene. Does that have a premiere date as well? No, I mean, I, I'm actually, this is kind of a test, this film, and then I'm, I'm trying to see what, what I'm going to. So I'm, I'm releasing Private Road as well. It stars Bruce Robinson. And Susan Penhaligon, who is I guess, known in England more as a TV actress, she was in um, 
Verhoeven's Soldier of Orange was, I guess, the movie that we might know her best for. And Bruce Robinson plays a writer and he wants to finish his novel, but then he falls for Susan Penhaligon's character and they run away to Scotland and elope. And and then later Bruce Robinson, he made With Nell and I, and supposedly the idea came from the, the whole this whole scene in Scotland in Private Road. Um, so that film I don't have, it's, it's a total, that, it's even more unknown than Bronco Bullfrog. Yeah. So I wanted to try to do a little, a small uh, festival tour of it first. Although it did play the first ever New Directors New Films in 1972. That's where it premiered in the U.S. Yeah, yeah so Barney is was, I mean, I'm, I'm really sad. So he passed away in October, and he and I were in touch all last year. I only got to speak with him on the phone once, and we just emailed back and forth a lot. And he was a lovely man, and he just basically wanted to bring, like, cinema to the people that was kind of his goal, you know, and he definitely was successful. I don't think he just didn't make that many films and he was just more interested in that and rather than actually making films after after the early 70s. It sounded like from some interviews he was very disillusioned with even the independent the cinema scene, yeah. Yeah. So Bronco Bullfrog had a distributor in the UK, but then Private Road, they did it all themselves and they just couldn't make it work because they were kind of burned. The whole story with Bronco Bullfrog was that it played at this theater in, I guess, the Cameo Poly for 18 days and it got great reviews and it was doing quite well, but then they pulled it for the Chekhov adaptation, Three Sisters with Laurence Olivier, and there was a huge protest the kids essentially from the movie like sam shepherd who plays bronco bullfrog got like all these kids to protest them pulling the film and they went to the theater and it was the premiere and princess anne she was there for three sisters and they staged this big protest and then later he invited her to their local cinema to see bronco bullfrog and she went i guess a, a few weeks later but it didn't play you know they they were upset and it just it didn't play enough in the uk it pretty much got all great review like every review is glowing so i was interested in re-releasing the soundtrack and i asked barney about it and he said the the masters were lost and then I'm, i've been trying to see if howard worth who i was who i've been in touch with who's from the band audience he's still looking for these mass soundtrack masters but still hasn't found them so i don't i don't know if they exist anymore the music is fantastic did they release albums yeah, they had three albums. One, I believe, was released in the U.S. through Elektra. And the last song of the film that has the line, like, darkness all around, that they actually re-recorded that for their second U.K. album. which And then it appeared on one of the... I think it was one of those situations where, like, the U.S. did a, an amalgamation of a couple albums, the American release of one of the albums. So that appeared on the version of their third album but then he went on to he had a small solo career and then he had like a new wave record in the early 80s late 70s early 80s that he recorded in la i don't know that much about them but the music is really really great and he chose them essentially because they were east londoners and they're part of that scene so they're older obviously they're in their 20s 
but that was where they're from. So there are parts of this movie that you know you can feel the budget, the low budget. Like they feel a bit amateurish, only because you know they clearly didn't have the money to stage the kind of fight scenes that larger budget movies yes, have. Exactly. And, and so you know it's one of those things. And I was kind of associated with Italian movies where it's right. like. You know, I don't really believe the fight that's happening or the, you know, the physical interaction. But once I see the makeup they put on the actor, once he's been kicked to the ground, I have a sense of how violent that interaction really was. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's kind of in this movie. And I, I, I sort of love that. But the music is handled so well. And it makes sense that he comes from an editing background because the the movie is... You know, there are a couple of scenes that are just shot reverse shot that are a little, you know, right. kind of basic. But a lot of the movie and especially the sound editing is yeah. or, you know, the music editing is is fantastic. He really knows how to use that music in this film. And it's such a huge part of it. Yeah, it, it feels like a music like an early music video in, in some scenes, like when they're on the motorcycles or. Yeah. And also the music itself, like it's very, it's used, the different songs are used very well, like climactically and all the emotion is, a lot of it is evoked through the music. Mm -hmm. A young person, I guess a, a 20 year old saw the film recently and, and I was telling her, oh, it's, it's very low budget. And she was very struck by, she thought the cinematography was very beautiful and she couldn't believe how good it looked. And I think it, I think it it does it's it's very I mean it's shot on thirty five millimeter, and at the time you know people were they were shooting features on sixteen millimeter I, I suppose but to me it's very beautiful. Yeah, the restoration is gorgeous. Yeah, the cinematography is great, but you're sort of used to seeing a sort of you know a, a sixteen millimeter aesthetic with this sort of movie. And to see yeah. these like beautifully restored thirty-five millimeter shots of Stratford, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's it's stunning. It's really a, a beautiful looking film. Yeah, there's also just some clever shot. I mean, like whenever they're in that um, that cafe playing the pinball machine with the yeah. the glass window behind, and and you can see like everything out the window. You can see the the writing on the on the window, and you know backwards, and yeah. it, it, it's well you know it's static the whole movie is very static but it's framed interestingly and they certainly use you know nothing looks like blown out or really crummy ever and maybe no. that's part of it as a film stock but I, there is definitely there's talent behind, behind yeah. the screen there well yeah you can read the words on the window which makes it clear that they're hanging out in the same shop yeah. that they robbed at the beginning right. of the film. <laughs> yeah exactly um and the cafe actually exists is still in it's a thai restaurant now Huh. FYI, it's called the Pie Crust Cafe, it, but but it's a Thai restaurant in Stratford. I actually have a photo of it, a recent photo. I think the thing that I really want to get across about this film and that it, the things that are in the press release that you, you gave us and just other things I've read about this film, it doesn't really get across how funny this film is. You know, it's about these sort of dead end lives of these kids who don't know what to do with themselves. But it's it really is funny. And this sort of them hanging out in the same cafe that they robbed earlier, yeah. you know, a scene before in the film is just one example of this sort of really low key kind of humor that runs throughout this film. I mean, there, there's so many. You know, we talked about the scene where they where Del says, oh, go. Who's who's that girl that your your cousin is with? Can you bring them back in here? And they you know they they sit at the table together for 
for a few minutes and don't say a word to each other. And then the cousin says, oh, it's time for us to go now. And yeah. like, stuff like that is really funny. And when Dell goes to ask Irene out for a date for the first time, he doesn't even know her name. And he knocks on the on her mother's door and says, oh, is your daughter here? And describes her as like, you know, she, she's she's slender. And and, yeah. uh, and the mother says, can I tell her who's asking for? Her? And he says, Jack the Ripper. And and it's just, you know, there's a lot of and really. Roy says, and his mate. Yeah, and his mate. Yeah. <laughs> there's a real, a lot of understated comedy in this that really, it reminded me of Black Peter, uh, Milos Forman's yes. first or, never or seen early Black film. Peter, uh, it's, yeah. it's terrific. I, I mean, I, I feel like this movie has more to do with that than a lot of the earlier kitchen sink films. Absolutely. There's also this scene in the beginning when they decide to go to the movies and Dell buys one ticket and then he lets everyone in in the back door and it's there's an old woman as the first person to walk in just a random woman that's waiting in line and he lets her in and he makes this very funny face there's a lot of comedy throughout that really kind of tempers the awkwardness and you know some of these you know there there's certain dramatic moments like the you know plain clothes policeman who's trying to track down irene because Dell and irene run off with each other none of that stuff is particularly convincing, but it's just sort of the humor of these situations of these scenes that sort of make it all right. It's like, Oh yeah. And, and here's the cop who's of course knocking on the door and has, has somehow managed to track them down. Like as realistic as this film feels like it really feels like it's capturing these kids lives. There's also this sort of heightened reality, like, Oh yeah, but we've also got a, a film here and we we're, we're trying to entertain people. Yeah, I, I yeah. think the two sides of that come together really well in this film. Well, it's like the lack of drama in this, even though there's plenty. I mean, there is drama, but there, the lack of like emotional drama in this is like both the limitation likely of the actors, but also the feature of the entire film. Like that's what you're here to see. It's like the best part of it. Just yeah. that there, there's never this like, you know, even though they're sort of running away from home, they're all they're sitting all this time. Uh, ask your uncle if uh, we can get a job around here. I don't, I don't want to ask him. You ask him. You know, it's yeah. like nobody wants to actually sit there and get emotional and like angry or frustrated. Like they're all just so busy coasting on just, you know, being bored. I mean, even the criminals, I mean, they, you know, no one's seen as bad. They're doing bad things, but they're all just sort of just doing it. You know, like they <laughs> have nothing else to do. Yeah. I feel like the worst offense in this was just when Bronco Bullfrog tells the old lady that he's renting from like, Oh, I'll do the dishes. And she's so thrilled about that. And the second she leaves, he just like steals everything in her it house. Is, that is the worst that I, I think that's the worst offense too. That's funny. <laughs> Cause she's such a nice old lady. Yeah. She's perfectly nice. And you sort of feel bad for her because she was so, you know, she really thought he was any, Oh, you know, and also you as the audience think, Oh, we just got out of jail. Maybe he's reformed. And you're like, Oh no, 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 not at all. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> But, you know, but they never it never tries to force anyone into this heightened drama of like, where shall we go and what shall we be like? Even the kids don't even. <laughs> yeah. That. And even the, I mean, the the train car break in is like the slowest, least suspenseful <laughs> right. break in on film. I think it's like the opposite of like Rififi or, or, or Latrue or these films where right. it's like very, you know, there's nothing exciting about that. That scene. It's just a it's just like carrying a bunch of boxes back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, the suspense is how are they going to get the box under the yeah, exactly. train car? Yeah. That's the only emotional beat in the whole film is once the, you know, um, I think it's Dell gets left under the train as the guards walk by. And yeah. then once his, his mates yeah. come back to, to get him, he, he vomits. 
Right, yeah. I think that's it. But even that is really understated. Yeah, yes, it's very understated. understated. I do love what you mentioned when Dell doesn't have the guts to ask his uncle if he can get a job when they're out in the in the country. But Irene does it for him, which is very telling. Like she has the guts. The woman has the guts, you know, of actually like fighting for the two of them. But he, he just doesn't know what to do. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. She sort of has a lot of the control in the relationship. Like Dell is willing to ask her out, but he has no idea what to do with her once he's asked her out. And she's yeah. sort of like, well, if you're not going to take me anywhere, I'm just going to go home. And, and, you know, a lot of his. You know, she says, I, I can't stay with my mother. She doesn't want you to see me. And and she sort of pushes them to run off somewhere. And she's kind of the motivator for what there is of drama in this film. Yeah, she's the restless one. Like uh, the rest of these guys would be just as fine to hang out in the same cafe every day. Or the little shack that they, they have. <laughs> right. That's another great scene where they just like walk in. He like sets down a sheet. They make out for two seconds and they're like, oh, all right, we're done. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then they just get up and leave. Yeah. I mean, I guess because it's a film from 1969 or 1970. Um, I mean, I generally am not, I'm not interested in contemporary cinema with non-professional actors. I really don't. I'm not interested in any of that. But I guess just simply for me, because it's a film from a different era, I love it, you know? I love repertory. I love old movies, you know? That's a huge part of why Jenna and I do what we do, is, you know, we can sit through so many terrible movies just because we love the era that it's capturing. And, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what's happening. You know, Jean-Luc Godard famously said that every film is a documentary of the, the making of the film. So even when the movie itself is not anything special, you're still getting this time capsule. And a lot of the press material on Bronco Bullfrog is talking about what a time capsule it is. Yeah. And it is, and it, that's one of the best things about it. But it also is so much more. Like, it feels like the start of something new. And I, I think it does seem like sort of the starting point for Ken Loach and, and right. Mike Lee and, and Alan Clark and Bill Forsyth and all that stuff. But you think that it would be the start of Barney Platt's Mills, too. But Yeah, um, unfortunately. Just, that, he ended in yeah. 1971, you know. And Private Road is really very different, you know. It's very different than this. But um, You mentioning that, you know, just watching non-actors, I'm, I'm totally with you. I'm, I'm not a big fan of any contemporary movies that, that include non-actors in order to get reality, quote-unquote. I feel like you get the opposite every single time. But there is something really interesting, especially about older documentaries and older movies like this. I think the people on the screen lack a type of self-awareness that everyone has now. I think we all take for yeah. granted how easy it is to take a photo of ourselves, how easy it is to have movies of ourselves. And, you know, now the internet is its own, you know, now we're all like, we know exactly what angle that we look good at and we know how to, you know, whatever to, to, to manipulate our images so much better. Whereas back then, I mean, these kids like, you know, even though being on seeing a camera made all these people would make you stop and stare or would make you clam up or would make you self-aware. There's this image of themselves in their head that they're both projecting and lacking that it is more revealing of who they are in a way. And there's something really appealing about that. It's just way more human than when you get someone say like some influencer, like, <laughs> Oh, of course. Yeah. 
I mean, I mean, the one thing I know this is kind of a might be a rote thing to say, but the fact that there it's 1969 and there are no cell, you know, there's no devices, right? They don't, they're <laughs> bored, you know, they're just bored. They have nothing to do. What do you mean? That motorcycle is a, is a great device. Yeah, no, I know. But what I mean is like, they're not like on their phones or they don't have something that is amusing them constantly. You know, they're just kids that they're just hanging out and they're, they have nothing to do, which is something that is I'm, now I'm sure kids don't have that, you know? Oh, I think kids are just as bored. They just have <laughs> something else to stare at instead stare, of yeah. themselves. Well, we sort of got into the movie itself a little earlier than we usually do, and we didn't really get a chance to uh, talk to you much about your love of film and, and you devoting your life to bringing film to the people. What really started you down that road into loving film? I don't, I mean, I guess, you know, the first film that I really... It's sound. It's pretty cliche, but the first film that I really fell in love with, that I thought, "Oh wow, this is this film speaks to me." Is the Four Hundred Blows, and that when I saw that, I mean, I must have. I think I saw that in college. I I, I don't think I saw it before then. I just thought, "Wow, this is this is." I want to be part of that. You know, before then, I didn't really think of cinema as being anything but quote unquote popcorn movies. You know. That that might sound kind of cliche, but especially that film. But I mean, it is a important, beautiful film. Well, and you haven't traveled that far from this film. There are a lot of no, similarities exactly. between Four Hundred Blows and Bronco Bullfrog. Yeah, but I mean, I so I basically after I moved to New York and I worked in you know boutique or you know quote unquote specialty cinema, quote unquote art film, foreign films, and I've kind of stuck to that and worked and was working at Film Forum, and I mentioned, like, Film Society of Lincoln Center, and, like, anything involving repertory cinema and rediscoveries is what I, you know, I really love. Well, convince us. Tell us why we need to go see Bronco Bullfrog in the theater. Well, I think any seeing anything in the theater is always the best. You feed off the other people in the cinema, and there's something about it that, to me, it pales watching it on you know, even if you have a big screen TV at home. You know, I guess I don't know how articulate I am about this <laughs> part, but I, I feel like I'm just, I love this movie. I think it's a, a universal movie and it's about when everyone was a teenager and everyone had a hard time. And everyone was wanted out of their teen lives. And I think this movie speaks to people in that in those ways. And I do think it's an incredible, I really, I'm glad you mentioned the restoration. It looks fantastic. And seeing it, we press screened it this week at Film Forum and it just it looked great on the, on the screen. It's also a Academy ratio. It's a, you know, a box, like old, quote unquote, old movies, a one, three, three ratio. And black and white. Didn't even mention that. <laughs> yeah. And it's in black and white. So I, I think it's a to it's a rediscovery and it's it's fresh. It feels to me it feels very fresh. It's a very fresh film. I think you know yeah the the best thing about watching older films is realizing just how relatable they are. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost it it still surprises me and I uh you know that's been my main focus for over a decade now. So it's 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 funny, but I I keep coming back because it just feels so goddamn human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I'm a sucker for coming of age movies, and it's yeah, I guess it's, it, you, this fits into that that rubric. So, I I want to think that a young person would love to see it and would want to see it. A young person meaning a person in the the same approximate the same age range as the characters in the film, a teenager or twenty something. But I honestly, I'm not sure. I don't know. There also seems to be something with you uh, about the conjunction between music and film. And maybe it's just because I knew you first as a music lover and later as a film lover. But it really, I, it seems like there's a, a big connection between the two for you. Yeah, I mean, I discovered the band audience through the movie. I had no idea. I had never heard of them before. And I just think it, it what you said very eloquently about the how the music is placed in the movie is it's it's really it, there's no music there's nothing in the movie that there there's no music scene or there's no con, it's not like blow up where they go and see the yard birds or something or like it's not like Babylon where you know it's around a whole reggae sound system but the music itself really works perfectly with the film and and it is this transitional music it's I mean, that sounds kind of boring saying transitional, but it's, you can't place, I mean, you can place the music, oh, it's from the late 60s, early 70s, but you don't, to me at least, I don't know how to describe the music accurately, you know? Yeah, I mean, transitional is exactly right. It feels like psychedelic rock, but it's already started to sort of move into the more 70s classic rock kind of sound a bit. It And they're beautiful. I think they're really good songs, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm curious... There's in the beginning of the movie, they go, I mentioned they go see a movie and I want to know what that movie is. And the music is very like John Barry. It yeah, feels it, like, it sounds well, it like, like James a Bond, Bond. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, it's not a Bond movie. Yeah. It's like rip it's off Bond. It's bootleg Bond. Bootleg Bond. Spoof. Spy spoof. You guys know a lot about bootleg Bond. We do. <laughs> more than we want to. More, more than you. Yeah. Matt Helm. If that was an actual movie that they went to see, we don't we don't know what it is. Yeah, I see. These are these questions. It really is. It really is upsetting that Barney is not with us anymore. That there's so many questions I had for him, including what movie was that? I want to know um, what you think Bronco Bullfrog means as a name. How do you think he got that nickname? I've read that um, there was a guy. In Borstal, that was his nickname, Bronco Bullfrog. But Sam Shepard, who plays Bronco Bullfrog in the movie, that was not his nickname. There was someone else um, in their crew called Bronco Bullfrog. Not not the same Sam Shepard, by the way. Not yeah, area. Sam Shepard uh, spelled differently. S H E P H E R D. But I think Bronco Bullfrog is probably a Cockney rhyming slang. You know thing where there's another word he was probably maybe his his name rhymed with bronco bullfrog and then they started calling him that i think i know frog is cockney for road really i think (laughs) (laughs) but i was thinking i mean the actor kind of looks like a bullfrog with his eyebrows yeah yeah. (laughs) but i think you're probably right I found him on Facebook, by the way. I found really Bronco Bullfrog. He he didn't get back to me though. But I, I've been in touch with Roy. Um, Roy's not in the business anymore, is he? No, no, none of these. Roy, things. incorrectly, he Roy is listed on IMDb as, 
as being in a Ken Loach film, but he he there was no me- Ken Loach has no memory of Roy being in in uh, I think it was Looks and Smiles, but uh, no, I mean none of these they they literally none they were in one movie and that's it. How about the crew? Did the the cinematographer go on to do yeah, other he, things? Well, he's now a um a visual artist. He's been a, like a visual artist for many many years. He he shot he made. Barney's second film, Private Road, and he actually shot a bunch of shorts and documentary shorts, one of which was nominated for an Oscar in the early 80s. But he didn't do much. He was, he's now, he's been like a visual artist for since the 80s, mid 80s, doing like a lot of light sculpture, actually. That's cool. Yeah. I've been in touch with him quite. He's very, he, a lot of these folks are, they're not very um, technically savvy with, you know, whatsapp or you know the, it's very difficult to get a hold of them I'm, I'm calling landlines all over england to find these people <laughs> facebook um, is about the best you can expect from people of a certain age facebook's a landline i guess i don't i mean the one thing i will say about repertory cinema or old quote-unquote old movies is i think it's the ultimate like watching movies is all about transporting yourself to a different time and a place and watching old movies is the ultimate way of of that right like yeah exactly they were made 50 years ago 100 years ago whenever so you're in that space it's the cheapest way to time travel yeah Yeah. closest we'll ever get to actual time travel i love period pieces from another era and there's that great french revolution noir do you know this the the anthony mann one richard basehart's in it anyway just the whole idea of like a movie, a pulp movie about the French. It's just, that's like this this weird like onion of all these different layers of like things to explore there. I don't know. That stuff's fascinating to me. But. Yeah, and it never ends. I mean, that's that's definitely what we're finding on this show is that we'll, we'll never get to the end of Cinema 60. There are always yeah. new amazing things to, to uncover. So much has been forgotten and needs to be found again. And this is a a great example of that. for bringing this movie to America and educating the masses here. This was awesome. And I'm thrilled to tell every single person I know to go to film forum and watch it. Please do. And um, we're opening in a, hopefully I, I got word back today, actually, that I think I can get a week in LA. We have Seattle, Portland, Oregon, Kansas city, Austin, some more dates. Oh, AFI silver and silver spring, Maryland. Exciting. Nice trying to have it play as many places as I can. It's really nice talking to you about uh, this stuff. Thanks so much for having me. Go, 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 go. 
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.